0: Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God, our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, since it's the new year, that means we've got to have an obligatory resolution introduction on the sermon today. I'm sorry. It's the rule. It's Sermon Giving 101. So today, I will highlight the progression of the plan of the resolution. Are you ready for this? You may want to write this down. Pencils out. Number one, here we go. Finish the year. Done, you did it. 2022 is behind you. Number two, make your goal, your wish, your resolution. Have you done this? Good. Number three, start it. Number four, this is the hard part, continue them. Number five, hope for the best. Number six, change, adapt, improvise. Number seven, after five days, decide to make that trade and win it all, or enter into the rebuild mode and look forward to 2024. I don't know if any of that will work, but again, it was obligatory. But wouldn't you know it, in today's text, the Apostle Paul highlights the progression of God's resolution, of his restorative plan for us in Jesus that was there from the beginning to move us from slave to child to spirit of God inside of us to heir. So let's pull out our Bibles. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 4. It's there in your bulletin if you forgot your Bibles. And of course, it will be behind me on the screen as we go through our text today, this morning of this new year. Again, when when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, the idea behind that phrase, the set time had fully come, really means when the time was right. Jesus came at just the right time in God's redemptive plan when the world was perfectly prepared for God's work. You may be asking yourself, well, what made it the right time? Was it something that people were doing, perhaps? Was it because that at the time the Pax Romana, the peace of the Roman Empire, extended over most of the civilized earth? and travel and commerce were possible in a way that had formerly been impossible, all because of those great roads that linked the empire of the Caesars? Was it because most of these diverse regions had a way of communicating because of the widespread language of the Greeks? Was it because the world was sunk into such a moral abyss that everyone cried out and were in need and had a spiritual hunger that finally had hit the peak and God said, okay, now is the time? Was it because the prophecy by Daniel in chapter 9 was drawing to close? Perhaps it's not surprising that our first guess, or really mine, was to focus on what seemed to be the factor that made the world the one responsible for the time being fully set. But the focus shouldn't be on how or when the world was set to receive Christ but rather the focus is that we are to see in this declaration that it is God the Father doing something he has sent his son God sent Christ into time that's what the focus here is Paul doesn't spend time discussing why it was the right time And if you move past that why and you dig down to the root, it might be that the concern isn't why did he send him during that time, it's about the waiting. Why the waiting? Why did he wait? Why did God wait to restore at that time? You go one step further, why does he wait to return? Why doesn't he just come back now? And we go one step further and we think, why does God make me wait? Perhaps you've seen the Princess Bride just a little bit too much. You've got too much Iningo Montoyo in you. That dread pirate Robert is climbing up the cliffs of insanity. Did you say it with me in the voice? Yeah, you did. Remember, he looks down and says, how much longer is it going to take? Could you speed things up? And he says, you're just going to have to wait. And he says, I hate waiting maybe you do too. You hate watching the downloading screen. You hate doing the research, the discipline. You hate making the resolutions. You want a resolution just like me that requires absolutely no work, it just happens. Because it's difficult to wait. If you go one step further, it's difficult to hold on to the hope when you're waiting. And if we take it really far, it's difficult to believe when God seems to be always making us wait. I've heard it said that don't you think it's strange that if God knows our address, what's he waiting for? If he would just show up, if he would just come to me, well then, I'd believe. Then I'd do what he asks. And for anyone who has spent any amount of time in the bondage of sin or struggled with addiction, or waited for that cure, waited for that call back, we have asked the question, God, what are you waiting for? And the text response for waiting, the text response for the why, is just the fact that it happened at the right time. In other words, God is in control, not us. And I'm sorry that I don't have the answers for you about why God waits. Why he is making you wait. But I can make an observation. It would seem that every moment of time then in the waiting here is valuable to God. And that would make sense because then every moment can be filled with wonder, can be filled with awe. Every moment of time can be filled with miracles and love. Every person, every conversation, every encounter is an opportunity in the waiting. Perhaps an opportunity to draw closer. Perhaps an opportunity to make amends. Perhaps an opportunity to learn humility. Perhaps an opportunity to grow, to change. And to see God for who he really is. And that's what I love about this text today because it's only three sentences long. But there is such amazing theology and promises in this little section. Take for example here, God sent his son born of a woman. That is a beautiful statement on Christ Jesus who is 100% God and 100% man, which is an important belief in Christianity and one that is shared across and was a driving force behind the last two creeds, one of which we will confess today. Not born of a man or born of a human, but born of a woman. Are you thinking about how in John 1, verses 12 to 13, it said, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God? Or were you looking further back, remembering that Eve, the woman, the one who ate the apple, who brought sin into the world, Of course, culture tends to ignore the fact that Adam was literally hiding right behind her as she eats, saying nothing, until it was, yeah, I'll take a bite. But Eve brought death into the world, a woman. Yet in the fullness of time, it was woman who brought life into the world. That's why her name got changed to Mother of the Living, because every human being who lives is born of a woman. And thanks be to God that Mary, a young virgin woman, said, let it be as you have said, because born to us was Jesus, who brought life eternal. Paul writes that he was sent from God, born of a woman, because it's his way of saying, this child is different, fully God, fully man. And if you're sitting there going, well, how does that work? It's not logical, it's not a philosophical stance, it's not 50-50, it's not sometimes he was God and sometimes he was man. I'll tell you, after three credits in pastor school, how it works, are you ready? It's a mystery, just saved you like four grand, brother. But again, if we get caught in the details, we miss the big verb there, sent. God sent his son to us with a purpose. And that means we have a God who not only chooses the time, but chooses to come down to be with us himself, who looks at people not as unworthy or a waste of his time, but worth fighting for, people who are worth everything. What's the saying? The secret to governing upon the earth is that the human life figures as nothing while heaven sets the worth of a soul at everything. You may just be a number to the world, but to the Lord himself, he knows you, chose you, came down to stand next to you, to be with you. Every step of the way. Even when you sin. Because you go a little further and you see that Jesus was born under the law and you can do a little homework on your own by reading Hebrews 9 and 13 to get a little background, but I'll do my best to try to summarize it. Mankind was supposed to obey the law, that Mosaic law, yes, but also all people, regardless of if you were a Jew or not, are born under the law. Paul mentions this at the beginning of Romans, that we're all under the law. And he summarizes it by saying that none of us keeps the law. Each one of us is guilty of sin. And if sin happens, if the law is broken, then the result of that is that blood must be shed. Leviticus 17 states that the life of the creature is in the blood. And so you must shed the blood on the altar to make atonement for your life. And that sounds pretty harsh. Actually, let me rephrase, that is harsh. What do you mean, preacher man, that I'm a sinner? What do you mean that I deserve death because I have broken the law. What do you mean this whole thing about shedding blood and laws and rules? I don't remember agreeing to follow any rules. This is the kind of stuff that we don't like to tell people about because it's uncomfortable, it's weird, it's not good. But the truth is that this stuff, this breaking rules, this sin is real. And each one of us is guilty of sinning. Each one of us is guilty of hurting. Each one of us is guilty of doing wrong, just like every other person who has ever lived. And so the consequence of our sin is death. Not to mention the living with our sin. The consequences and the pain that come alongside it, the hurt, the suffering that we have caused ourselves, others in this planet. So God sends his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to this world to be among us, to redeem us. Isn't it fascinating that Christ's enemies during his life, nor even the critics who write about it today, could ever prove Jesus of sinning? It's one of my favorite parts in the Gospels. Do you remember this? When he stands up and says, which of you can accuse me of sin? Can you imagine the audacity of someone doing that today? It'd be like a 10-second deep dive on your uh, social media. It'd be like, got you. Any married person in here would never stand before their spouse and say, how can you accuse me of sin? Never. No way. Yet Christ was without sin, perfect and fulfilled the law. Every dot, every iota of it. Not one sin. How? Because he was fully God and man. And if you just think, well, that's a nice little cop out, you're just making this kind of up, you have any supporting verses, well, I do today. For this reason, from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Because we have a God who understands us, who sees us, and we have a God who acts on our behalf. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To receive what we did not deserve. Jesus received death, we received life. He received our sin and we received his grace, our covered. He was loved and now so are we because he was sent to redeem us. We gather here today to begin our year to hear something that we need to hear every moment of every day. That Jesus Christ has died for us so that the sin and the failures of this life that would seem to separate us from God would be made null and void and what would stand Would be Him. We are those who have become convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, neither a good GPA or a bad, neither being homeless or living in a mansion, neither today, tomorrow, neither addiction nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the truth. That in Christ Jesus and by no other person are we saved. For we have been redeemed from underneath the law. Galatians 4.4 and 4.5 says that this redemption also comes with adoption. The adoption is children. It would have been just fine if we had just simply been purchased out of the slavery of sin. But God's work never stops just there. He elevates us to the place of sons and daughters. He adopts us. He chooses us. And if every human being is made in the image of God and is a child of God, how special is it to be adopted by him through baptism, to be chosen by him, to be loved by him, Paul writes to a Roman audience, and in the Roman custom of adoption, those who are adopted are given absolutely equal privileges in the family, equal status, as if they were born from them. And what we find in this blessing is that God has given us not just forgiveness and salvation, but in true, deep love for us, has made us family. When we see this, we gain something that not even Adam had in the Garden of Eden. You are not going to recover your perfectness. You are going to receive it from Jesus, and you are going to receive even more. Child of God, loved by him. The text continues and says, because you are his sons, God sent the the spirit of his son, the spirit of Jesus into our hearts, the one who calls out "Abba Father, no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are His child, you have been made an heir. We know that we are the sons and daughters of God by the witness of the Holy Spirit that is within us. God purpose, His resolution to secure our adoption by His Son, Jesus, and to go one step further by placing His Spirit inside of us so that we could experience being a child of God, not just be told it, given the right and the ability to cry out, Abba, which is Aramaic for Daddy. And some think that that's just a little bit too intimate, maybe even improper, especially with how it gets used in some circles today. But the early church fathers, especially the ones who lived where Aramaic was spoken and had Aramaic nurses, said that this is the way that we are to address the father as a small child would in the intimacy of a family circle to share in the same intimacy that Jesus had with God, to pray in the same way that Jesus did to the Father, to trust in the same way that Jesus did with the Father, to live in the same way that Jesus had with the Father. It says, call out, Abba, Father. Cry out. Don't whisper it as if we're hesitant that we could speak to him that way, unsure of where we are with him. We cry it out with boldness, especially when we struggle with the waiting for Him to come. I think of when my baby is having a bad dream. She doesn't whisper, Daddy, she cries it out. Because crying is her way that she will be certain. She knows I will hear. She knows I will come running. You get to cry out to God Himself, and He hears you. Because you are His. You are not a slave that has no place in this house to be used for a service and then picked for the next one, exchanged when something better comes along. You are his child, an heir, an heir who inherits something, forgiveness, eternal life, but you inherit also God himself. And to some, that may seem like an imaginary inheritance. But to us, we find that to be an heir of God, to receive the very spirit of God in us, is the richest inheritance of all. Because it means that every day, we are not alone. And we start this year off knowing exactly who we are. His, and part of His family. We are those who are included in the transformative reality of a life with Jesus Christ, participating in the life that he has given us, together as brothers and sisters, sharing in his peace, his hope, his joy, and his purpose. I pray that God blesses you during this year, and that you feel His presence, the presence of God Himself with you every moment, through your waiting, through your resolutions, through your joys, and through it all. Amen.